Now shall we turn to that passage in Ephesians 3, <coughs> Ephesians 3, We will read from verse 1. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, in behalf of you Gentiles, if so be that ye have heard of the dispensation of that grace of God which was given me to you, Ward, how that by revelation was made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote before in few words whereby when ye read ye can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known unto the sons of men, as it hath now been revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to wit that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of that grace of God which was given me according to the working of his power. And to me who am less than the least of all saints was this grace given to preach unto the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the dispensation of the mystery which for ages has been hid in God who created all things to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in the heavenly places might be made known through the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in another passage in Colossians and chapter 1 and from verse 24, Colossians chapter 1 and from verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and fill up on my part that which is lacking of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I was made a minister according to the dispensation of God which was given me to you, Lord, to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which had been hid for ages and generations, but now hath it been manifested to his saints, to whom God was pleased to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ, Whereunto I labour also, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. For I would have you know how greatly I strive for you, and for them at Laodicea, for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be comforted, they being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, that they may know the mystery of God, even Christ, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden. Now, shall we just bow our heads in prayer this evening, and shall we just, in our own hearts, all look to the Lord, that he will be with us this night in this study, and give revelation 
and illumination. Let's just bow our heads. Be definite with the Lord. If you're specific with the Lord, the Lord will be specific with you. Dear Lord, we do want to thank thee that when we come to thy word, we have a sure and certain promise that, Lord, thou wilt, by the spirit of truth, lead us into all, to tr all truth. And we want to tell thee, Lord, that apart from the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit, neither our speaking nor our hearing will be to any profit. But, oh, Father, how glad we are that when the Holy Spirit is here with enabling power and grace, then our speaking can be the speaking of thy word. It can be a, an opening of a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ. And it can be to us who hear revelation and illumination so that, Lord, our hearts, the eyes of our hearts are enlightened and we know in a way that we have never known before thyself. So, Lord, we commit this little time to thee that thou wilt, Lord, dispel any darkness, heaviness of any kind, and thou wilt grant instead that we may meet with thee. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> now, I think all of you know that we've been taking a series on this little phrase, the mystery of Christ. And... Um, we have spent uh, one evening on introducing the whole subject and another evening on what that mystery of Christ really is and a third evening on the challenge which is inherent within the revelation of that mystery. Now, this evening I want to start upon uh, the last uh, of these uh, evenings. There will be, I think, three more, if I'm right, including tonight, um, if the Lord will, and um, I want to talk about the practical relevance of the mystery of Christ to us all. Now, I realize that any who have not been with us when we spoke about what the mystery is might be a little bit at sea, but it is all on tape, and you can get uh, those tapes and listen to them carefully and prayerfully. <clears throat> but the, <clears throat> the real thing is this. This matter, although it spans <clears throat> the whole of time from before times eternal right through to the ages to come, is not a mystical matter. In other words, we tend, because we call it the mystery of Christ, people immediately think that it is a mystical matter, something which only those who are a bit balmy anyway can understand. You've got to be sort of um, somehow or other... Uh, your head in the clouds, one of those dreamy, visionary type of people who are of no earthly use. If you're that type of person, poetic, artistic, they, that's how they normally think of them. I'm not saying that's true. About artistic, poetic, then of course, <clears throat> you will be the kind of person uh, that will understand the mystery of Christ. If you're practical, down to earth, you deal in concrete terms, you're... Um, uh, you're sort of the, the practical Martha type, 
Well, of course, <coughs> this mystery of Christ is not for you. You'll never understand it, and you might as well have a little sleep uh, uh, this evening. This is not so. <coughs> the mystery of Christ is not a secret which God withholds from people. It is not something which is mystical in the sense that it is abstract, ethereal, somehow up there. It is a secret which God has communicated and wants to communicate to every born-again believer in this age. What has been hid from other ages and other generations, God has now revealed through his holy apostles and prophets. And this is the most wonderful privilege that every true child of God has in this age. That what was withheld from Abraham, for instance, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Moses, from the other great patriarchs and prophets, and even John the Baptist, has been revealed to the humblest, simplest, and most insignificant child of God. Isn't that marvelous? No wonder the word said, the Lord Jesus said, that the least in the kingdom of God <coughs> is greater than John the Baptist. He didn't mean <coughs> that you and I are of more spiritual value than Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or that we have more spiritual character than Isaiah or Zechariah or uh, John the Baptist himself. What the Lord meant was this, that the simplest, most insignificant child of God in the kingdom has more privilege than all those patriarchs and prophets put together. Because it has been our tremendous privilege to have this mystery communicated to us. Now it is a tragedy when the children of God don't even know what it's all about. This, this matter lies at the heart of the gospel. It lies at the heart of God's purpose. It lies at the heart of his redeeming grace. And therefore, it should be, uh, since it is a privilege that God has revealed to us, then every one of us, as soon as we're saved, should begin to seek the Lord for illumination, should begin to seek the Lord for revelation, should begin to seek the Lord that this secret which he has so graciously manifested, revealed, communicated, might be known to me, might be known to you. Now, it is not something vague, something idealistic, something theoretical. And this is how most people think of the mystery of Christ. They think of it as, oh, a wonderful, wonderful spiritual ideal. A wonderful truth, but basically theoretical. And those that would go further than that, would say it is a wonderful truth, but it is something to do with the future, after death. It's not anything that you and I can enter into now. But that's not true. The mystery of Christ, if I understand it aright, is intensely practical and has a very real relevance to us all now. And so, without any further introduction, 
I want to start to consider some of, of its relevance in practice for us. And the first thing I want to talk about this evening is this. It is the oneness of Christ in action. Let me say it again. The mystery of Christ is the oneness of Christ in action. The mystery of godliness, the mystery of Christ, is that by the grace of God, you and I have been brought into a union with him. And there should be fruit from that union. There should be love, joy, peace, long-suffering, the fruit of the Spirit that comes out of that union. Because we are one with Christ, I am one with Christ, you are one with Christ, then something's happened between us. If I and the Lord Jesus have become one, and you and the Lord Jesus have become one, then something's happened to you and me. We have become one. And there should be fruit from that. Now you begin to understand why the enemy attacks this matter. Because I don't suppose there is any matter that is more furiously, ferociously attacked than the unity of God's people. I travel all over the place. And it's rare to find the Lord's people staying together. In moments of great blessing, people do come together. And they stay together for a while but not for long. It's not so very long before they fall out with one another. When they begin to come down to the basics, we sneer at the United Nations so often in Christian circles. We say United Nations, disunited nations. But in actual fact, we're no better. We believers are as hopelessly at times divided. Now this mystery of Christ is nothing if it is not the oneness of the Lord Jesus in action. Essentially, <clears throat> the mystery of Christ is union with Christ. We've become one body in Christ, as it says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 5. Although we have many members, yet are we one body in Christ. Not one body of Christ, one body in Christ. That's something more. We have it again in 1 Corinthians and chapter 12 and verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Isn't that amazing? It didn't say so also is the body of Christ. It didn't say so also is the body of which Christ is the head. What that says is this. That the body is Christ. Because we are in him. He is our oneness. He is our life. He is our salvation. In some marvelous way, we've been incorporated. We have been made the body of the Lord Jesus. We have come into him. We have become partakers of him. We've become members of him and therefore members of one another. We have become limbs of the Lord Jesus. It is amazing. One hardly dares to say it if it were not the word of God and limbs one of another. I say that's tremendous. Now that's what the word of God says. Now the nature of this oneness is tremendous. 
It is not a goal to be attained or a state to be achieved. So very often amongst the Lord's people, you hear about the unity of the people of God as a goal that somehow or other we're all trying to get to. And we have organizations, ecumenical organizations, and many other agencies that are seeking to promote the unity. They're they're seeking somehow or other to move us, phase by phase, stage by stage, into some kind of unity. But this oneness of Christ is not a goal that we, an ideal that we're all seeking to realize, a, a kind of goal which we're seeking to attain, a state that we're seeking to achieve, this oneness is something into which we are born of God by the Spirit. Now when we get that, our whole mentality changes. You see, it is not an outward organizational unity. Something that is because we have a worldwide structure with a worldwide headquarters. We have a worldwide uniformity. No, this oneness, this unity is an organic, living, vital unity into which we are introduced by a new birth. So the simplest child of God is in this unity. Not something to be achieved, something to be maintained. No wonder the apostle said, give diligence to maintain the unity of the Spirit. He didn't say, now then all of you, screw up every bit of faith you've got. Take hold of all the grace that is yours and and try to create the unity of the Spirit. Try to achieve the unity of the Spirit. No. What he said was, give diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit. You cannot keep something you haven't got. Or in the modern version, maintain the unity of the Spirit. You can't maintain something you haven't already got. The very word presupposes that it is already there. Isn't this wonderful? Now you begin to look at a few scriptures and they begin to fall into shape, into place. Listen, John 17, and these wonderful words, so tremendous of our Lord's high priestly prayer. Listen again. He prays for all of us who believe on me through their word. That's all, that's you and me. That they may all be one. Now he goes on. Even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us. And he goes on. That the world may believe that thou didst send me, and the glory which thou hast given me I have given unto them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfected into one, that the world may know that thou didst send me, and lovest them even as thou lovest me. Now, I think that's an amazing statement of our Lord, because what the Lord Jesus was saying was this, it is something that no theological mind has ever yet been able to fathom or plumb. This is what our Lord was saying, as simple as this. 
The unity that exists between the Father and the Son is the unity into which you and I are born by the Spirit of God. You can't organize that. You can't attain to that. Only the grace of God could do that. Only the finished work of the Lord Jesus could introduce you into something like that. Not if you were the dearest, sweetest patriarch in the world. Someone who, who gave his whole or her whole life to God. You still wouldn't achieve a goal like that. To be introduced into the same unity that exists between the Father and the Son. No a church creed has yet been able to define the unity of the Godhead. We only know that there is one God but three persons. We don't understand it. They have tried to define it this way and tried to define it that way. And I'm not pouring any scorn upon their definitions because I believe the Holy Spirit has helped them. But even when you read their definitions, it leaves you bewildered. <laughs> but the Lord Jesus said, I pray for them. This is the prayer of the Lord Jesus. This is the burden of his intercession. What does he pray? That they may be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may be in us. <coughs> this is the mystery of Christ. No one else ever revealed that. That's been revealed to us. That's tremendous. When you begin to think it, if only the Holy Spirit would shine into your heart, the whole matter of the church would suddenly fall into place. You wouldn't see it as a structure, as a place where you can leave your umbrella in, or your handbag in, or you go to church. You wouldn't see it like that anymore. You would suddenly run. The church is the Lord Jesus. I mean, I'm in him. He's in me. We are in him. He is in us. Then you would begin to realize it's no question of labeling it. It's neither Anglican, nor Methodist, nor Lutheran, nor Mennonite, nor anything else. How dare we give it any human name? It's impossible to name it, to devalue what God has done. To make it less than it is in the eyes of God. Oh, if we'd only all seen this, wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't we have been saved from many pitfalls in church history? Many tragic divisions? But let's come back to this matter again. Uh, turn again to John chapter 15 and verse 5. Listen to the words of our Lord Jesus again. It was, the, it was literally in the same hour or two in which he prayed that prayer. Just before it, he said this, I am the vine, ye are the branches. And then he said, He that abideth in me and I in him the same beareth much fruit, for apart from me ye can do nothing. Now, I, you older ones will have heard me say this many times, but let me say it again for the sake of you younger ones. You see, people read this quite wrongly. They read, I am the trunk, you are the branches. The Lord never said, I am the trunk, you are the branches. The Lord said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Now the vine is the roots, the trunk, the branches, the tendrils, the leaves, the blossom, and the fruit. It is the totality. Jesus was saying, I'm the whole thing. From root 
to fruit. I am the whole, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, first and last. I am it all. And, blessed be God, you are branches. You are not the vine. You're branches. <laughs> you're much less than me, but you're in me. Now, the Lord didn't say, I am the root, I am the trunk, I am the leaves, I am the tendril, I am the blossom and the fruit, and you are the branches. He said, I am the vine. So what he was really was saying is this, I am the branches, you are the branches, only I am much more than you. Now, the Lord Jesus said this, I am the light of the world, he said, Ye are the light of the world. How can we be the light of the world? We understand how he can be the light of the world. How can we be the light of the world? We can only be the light of the world insofar as we're one with him. When we're in him and he is in us, we become the light of the world because he is the light of the world. And in us, he becomes the light of the world. Do you understand this? Now, you see, this matter of the church is something so wonderful when we begin to... He is the vine. He is the covenant people of God. Any Jew would have understood in those days when Jesus said, I am the true vine, my father is the husbandman. They would have, they would have, their understanding would have been confused. They would have wheeled um, back, as it were, in their mind. Why? Because they knew very well that the vine was the symbol of the covenant people of God. Even on the only times in Jewish history when Jewish coins were struck, vines were put on them. Well, as the palm tree, but the vine figured on some of those coins. And every Jew knew that speaks of us. That's the symbol of us. We're the covenant people of God. And then the Lord Jesus came and said, I am the bread of life. Well, all right, we don't understand it quite, Lord, but you say you're the manna that comes out down out of heaven and he that eats you, uh, your flesh, will have eternal life. Well, it's hard to understand, but all right. And then he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And we said, oh dear, you didn't say I give the resurrection and I give the life, but I am the resurrection and the life. That's rather hard. Then he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, we read, that's a little difficult. He didn't say I point to the way. I preach the truth, and I give the life. He said, I am. And then he said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, how do we understand it all? But I think the thing that must have been the most confusing of all was when he said, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. They, as if they said, now, now we don't understand what he's talking about. The rest was hard enough, but now it's gone into another dimension of difficulty. How can he be the people? How can he be the covenant people? But he is saying, I am the covenant people. And my father is the husbandman who from the beginning has cared for this people, watched over this people, attended to this people, sought to prune back what was alive and cut out what is dead. The Lord Jesus was saying the same thing again. This is a unity into which we're born. He didn't say, all who fight to get into me, I will come into them. If you go on long enough, striving and straining, in the end you'll get into me, and then I'll get into you. He didn't say, he said, abide in me. And the word is, remain in me. Well, you can't remain somewhere if you're not already there. So God has put us there. And now we're to remain there. 
God has positioned us in Christ. We're to abide. We're to stay where God has put us. God has put us in his Christ and has put his Christ in us. Now, look again at another scripture. Look at this 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12 to 14. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of the body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For in one spirit were we all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether bond or free, and were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one men member, but many. Now what is he saying? He is saying that although it is one body, there are many members. And yet this one body with many members is Christ. Why, by one spirit, we've all been immersed into the one body. We've all been positioned in the one body. And we've all been made to drink of the one spirit. Why? This is, this is amazing, isn't it? So this is the mystery of Christ. The apostle says, so you can see in a few words my understanding of this mystery. To which he says, <laughs> which is, we would say in modern English, that we are fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers. Look again at Romans chapter 12. And verse 4 and 5. Here we have it again in another letter. For even as we have many members in one body, and all the members have not the same office, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and severally members one of another. Now that's an interesting word, isn't it? And severally members one of another, which means that we are all members of one another. So this isn't only that we are members of the Lord Jesus, that we have become one body in him, but something's happened to us. Now we're coming near to this mystery of Christ. <laughs> we are fellow members of the body. I think now, if you begin to think carefully and prayerfully, you begin to, you un, you un, you will begin to understand the injunction of the Apostle Paul by the Spirit. Give diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit. You may know absolutely nothing. You may have been born of God one hour ago, but if you were born one hour ago of God, you are in this oneness. And you may have been to a theological seminary and may be able to mug up a sermon for Sunday reasonably intelligent but without much living power if any and if you've not been born of God you're not in this oneness you can have the titles you can have the clothing you can have the structure you can have the position but if you're not born of God you're not in that oneness and you may not have the structure or the titles or the status or the training but if you are born of God you're in that oneness And I find this so a tremendous privilege 
Now then, let's ask ourselves a question then. Well, what is it that unites all believers? Think for a moment. Let's look at it from another angle. See if we can help ourselves in this matter. What is it that unites all believers? Race? No, it's not any with Jewish background here and others of Gentile background. We're divided instantly. So it's not race. Is there anyone here who's Asiatic? We normally have a few. Well, then they're not Caucasian or Aryan. Or are there those who are white? Well, there are a lot of white people here. What about a black face? Or a nice coffee brown face? Are we united by color? No, we're not united by race nor by color. Then are we united by nationality? No, it would be very interesting to see the nationalities in this room. All kinds of nationalities in this room. So we're not united. We're not all good Britishers. So we're not united. Then what are we? Are we united by social class? No. Of many different classes. Background. Where we came from. We're not united by that. So what are we united by? Well, then perhaps we're united by theological views. <laughs> but if there's someone here who has strong Calvinistic views and someone else who has strong Arminian views, we're not united. And maybe there's someone here who believes fervently in baptism by sprinkling. And many others who believe that you should be baptized as a believer by immersion. Well, we're not united. So what are we going to do? So we're not united by that either. We may be born of God, but we're not united by that. There are many other views I won't go into. Some believe in a millennium, and very fervently they do. And others don't believe in a millennium at all. They think it's nonsense. Well, what are we going to do? Tear each other's eyes out? They do in some places. What shall we do? Some people believe we're going to go before the tribulation. Some people are going to go after the tribulation. And some during the tribulation. What shall we do? There are many other matters, theological matters, that are just as difficult. So we're not really uh, on that matter. We're not one. What about denominational labels? Well, I suppose we've got all kinds of denominational. Some have let them go. Others have still got them. Oh, what is it then that unites us? Temperament. <laughs> now we know very well, if we're honest, that that's the root of half our problems. There are people that are so full of, of zeal and energy, they'll get on and do it. And there are others that are so sort of... Uh, cautious and uh, of course those who go forward believe that the people who are cautious have just got an evil heart of unbelief and those who uh, um, uh, have got that kind of inbuilt caution believe that they've got wisdom <laughs> but I've seen companies torn in shreds by temperament When people can't recognize temperament under the government of God. 
Oh, temperament's a big thing. You get some people who are melancholic. Down they go. And nothing on earth will drag them up. And when we're all praising the Lord, they're having a marvelous time. <laughs> you know, they're, they're enjoying their down at the bottom of the ocean. But then they will come up. And they go right up to dizzy heights where they almost seem to be stupid. Whilst others of us, like tanks, move along on a level course. Not such a wide variation of feeling, neither too much down nor too much up. It's terribly difficult when you've got someone who is a true melancholic and someone who is a true phlegmatic to get them to understand one another. <coughs> the melancholic feels the phlegmatic is the type of person who could never, ever feel anything. And the phlegmatic feels that the melancholic is one of those stupid, artistic types that are really not too much, <laughs> worth too much. Always up there or down there. And really, on the level. But we're not united by, by temperament. So what are we united by? Well, what about age? Well, we're not united by age, are we, really? I mean, we've got a whole range here, I suppose. And going up nearly to the 90s. Well, what about sex? No, we're not united on that either. So what is it that unites us? There is only one thing that unites us. No one person who unites It is Christ. You see, we may be different races, different colors, different nationalities, different social backgrounds, different theological persuasions, different ages, different sexes. But there's only one Lord Jesus. And the glory of this matter is that everyone who's born of God is in the same Lord Jesus, and the same Lord Jesus is in all of them. So here is a melancholic, he's in the Lord Jesus. Here's a phlegmatic, he's in the same Lord Jesus. And the same Lord Jesus is in the phlegmatic and in the melancholic. So there is their unity. Their unity is not temperament, nor bashing one another to try and make each other the same as the other. Their unity lies in resting in the fact that they're quite different, but they have the same Lord. Now, whatever women's lib may say, women are quite different to men. That is their glory. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is this, that we can start along that line which the world is going along, that we're totally equal. We are equal. I firmly believe that whatever some, some teach that we're not here, we are absolutely equal because our status before God is absolutely the same. Our worth before God is absolutely the same, but our function is the same. Women complement men, and men complement women. They are two halves of a whole. Now, what is the uniting factor which will destroy all the bitterness 
the Lord Jesus. Because men are in Christ and women are in Christ. And Christ is in the men and he's in the women. Do you understand? What about age? There's the youngsters. They don't feel much relationship to the older ones. They don't feel they can approach them. They somehow feel they belong to another age. But isn't it wonderful when we begin to realize that that older person is in the same Lord Jesus that this younger person, whoever it is, is in. You understand? And the same Lord Jesus is in us all. And so suddenly we begin to realize that everybody's got something to give. The older person's got something to give. The younger person's got something to give. It's not as if the older people have only got something to give and the younger people have nothing to give. The young people, you younger ones, you've got a lot to give. You can rejuvenate the older ones. They don't half need it at times. You can rejuvenate them. You can refresh them. You can renew them. And they can give you debt that you cannot have with you. Not imposing upon you, not destroying your uh, initiative or your freedom of action, but giving a security and a balance. But the only way we can stay together is the Lord Jesus. When young and old, see, it is the Lord Jesus. It's the same Lord Jesus. We're in him together and he is in us together. Then we begin to see the value of one another and all these Wretched things that is the spirit of the age which is destroying society with bitterness does not have to have any place in the house of God. But the house of God becomes a testimony to the world that young and old can be together, that men and women can find their rightful place together, that different theological persuasions can remain together. That different colors can worship and live together. That different races, different nationalities can all be found together. I sometimes feel like crying when I hear amongst the Lord's people this kind of thing about, you know, the world, how divided it is, how disunited it is and how it's all going on the broad way that leads to destruction when we ourselves who should be a testimony to a dynamic unity are as divided as the world only we have less reason we have no reason to be divided because our unity is not something we have to achieve or attain it is something which we are born into and that's why the mystery of Christ is the oneness of Christ in action. It is meant to be a dynamic power in, in society. Because as the world looks on, they see they're the kind of society that God meant the world to have. Only they fell from. In the church, with all our failings and faults, because we're frail human beings, the world ought to be able to see the kind of unity, the kind of love, the kind of care that attracts them. Yes, you see, Christ is our basic oneness. Now, never forget that. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he came to the church in, in Corinth and found that they were divided four ways. There was the Peter party, there was the Paul party, there was the Apollos party, and there was the exclusive party. 
And he said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. What was his point? What did he say? Can Christ be divided? No. Therefore, all those who are born again in the policies party, they belong to me and I to them. And all in my own party that have taken my name, I belong to them and they to me. And they belong to the others and the others to them. And Peter's party, I belong to them and they to because I determined not to know anything save Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, it's very simple, as I've often tried to put it, in kind of like a basic mathematics. It's you plus you and you and you in Christ, and Christ in you and you and you and you, and you equals the church. That's the church. Now, within Christ, all these middle walls of petition, all these middle walls which divide us, have been abolished. Start, take your Bible quickly. We haven't so much time. Let's just see if we can find them. In, for instance, Ephesians and chapter 2. <coughs> now, verse 14 and 15. For he is our peace who made both one and break down the middle wall of petition, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that he might create in himself of the two one new man, so making peace. The middle wall of petition has gone. There was no greater middle wall of petition than between Jew and Gentile. That was colossal wall of petition. If that dividing wall has gone, so have all the others. Look again at uh, um, John chapter 10. John chapter 10 and verse, four, uh, verse 16. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock, one shepherd. Isn't that interesting? One flock, one shepherd. <laughs> because there's one shepherd, there'll be one flock. Middle wall gone. The middle wall gone. The middle wall that divides. Some were outside, some were in. Some were inside and some were far off. Some were alienated, some were favoured. It's gone. Look again. Colossians chapter 3. And verse um, uh, 10 and 11. And have put on the new man that is being renewed unto knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there cannot be Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bondman, free man, but Christ is all and in all. Now, do you realize the walls between those people? Greek and Jew, a colossal wall between them. Racial wall. <coughs> Religious wall. Circumcision and uncircumcision, total theological difference. Religious difference. Barbarian, Scythian. Oh my. They were beyond the pale. They were the most, un they were the vandals. They were the uncultured ones. 
they were just considered to be like savages. Do you mean to tell me that the Apostle Paul is saying that that savage in Christ, there's no middle wall dividing him between us without education and our sophistication and refinement and standards of living? You surely can't mean such a thing. That's what it says. Could there be any greater difference between a bondman and a free man? You know what a free man was? He was someone who was absolutely free. But a bondman was owned by his master. He could not go out free. I can't think of any greater difference in social class than to be a bond slave <coughs> or to be a free citizen. A free citizen gives you status, position in the whole community. A bond slave, you have none. And yet it says, the middle wall's gone. Now, does this mean that there are no longer, in those days, bond slaves were no longer bond slaves? Oh, no. They were still bond slaves. And the Apostle Paul goes on in his letters to tell bond slaves how to react to their masters. Some of them were debauched, depraved men. And yet he tells them how to look beyond them, through them, to the master behind and serve the Lord and serve those evil men as if it was the Lord himself. So they remain bondmen. So much for those who say. You see, it says in Galatians, if you want to look at it, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27 and 28, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ and put on Christ, there can be neither Jew nor Greek, there can be neither bond nor free. There can be no male and female. But ye are all one man in Christ Jesus. So people tell us, of course, that means there's no lady. There's no ladies anymore. No men. We're a new man. But he doesn't say that. I shall believe a woman is a man or a man is a woman when a man can give birth to a child. Then I will join women's lib. <laughs> but if a man cannot give birth to a child himself, then there must be a difference in function. There must be a difference in constitution. There must be some difference in emotional makeup. So what does it mean when it says neither male nor female in Christ? It means that the middle wall of bitterness has gone. The middle wall of discrimination has gone. The middle wall of alienation has gone. The division has gone. But the functions remain. Those who are Jewish remain Jewish. And those who are Greeks remain Greeks. But they are one new man in Christ. The middle wall has gone. You're not meant to give up being British because you're a Christian. You are meant to render unto God what is God's and unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And where the two things come into conflict, then your priority is God, not Caesar. But nevertheless, you don't lose your British citizenship or your Norwegian citizenship or your German citizenship or your Chinese citizenship or your American citizenship or your Canadian citizenship or your Australian citizenship. I won't go any further. <laughs> you don't give it up you not only retain it you have a duty and a mandate given you by God to vote 
and to make yourself, your little voice, known in your country. So much for these people who never listen to the news and never vote because they're the Lord's people. What nonsense. You have to obey every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. So you see, we, are, we don't lose these things. What happens is that the thing that divides us and becomes the, the, the fountain of bitterness amongst us is destroyed. It, it's removed. It's abolished. And we are one in him. He becomes our oneness. Christ is everything in everyone. There is Christ is everything in the Jew who saved, and everything in the Gentile who saved, if Christ is everything in the bondman, and everything in the free citizen, and everything in the barbarian Scythian, and everything in the cultured type, everything in the, cir the circumcised, and everything in the uncircumcised, what a tremendous look we have. What a fullness. Oh, I hope that you begin to see something of this, you see, because it means very simply, let's just list these things. It means that racial and national differences have been abolished. Social differences have been abolished. Theological differences have been abolished. The sex barrier has been abolished. The age barrier has been abolished. And the temp and temperamental differences have been abolished. Now, I don't mean that there are not different temperaments. You understand me. Not at all. What I'm simply saying is this, that the dividing wall, so that the person who sometimes is a person who goes down, doesn't always have to feel that they have to be full of froth and bubble. There are times when it's normal and natural to go down. Of course, when a person has an unhealthy... Um, love for being down, as some do, there is something wrong. It's an obsession. But generally speaking, we can be ourselves in the Lord, can't we? And this brings a tremendous relief to us all. For the first time, we can start to just to, to sort of say, oh, I can breathe again. I can be myself. I, 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 can, I can be my... I know I've got to be tempered. I've got to be moderated. There's got to be adjustments. The excesses and extremes have got to be uh, ironed out. But what I am, I am. And I, and I remain that. And you remain that. And we come together. And fullness is in this whole matter. I don't think it's too at all uh, a bad thing when we have, we have some, for instance, who uh, uh, see very much the... Um, uh, and emphasize very much the predestinating power of God. It's one end of the truth. Somewhere on the other end, this whole matter of human responsibility and free will is also found. Now, I, personally, I don't see that other end so well. But I know there are those even amongst us here who see it very clearly. And I think that's right. Why shouldn't one person accentuate and emphasize the sovereignty of God in all things and another person human responsibility, the necessity of human response? 
If God has led that person that way and another another way, what else can you do? As I've sometimes told you, I remember years ago, a, a, a man, uh, he was the father of famous sons, or one quite famous son, the other very well known, a merchant sailor, Navy captain, nowhere near God, came back one day in a drunken state, fell on his living room floor, in a stupor, came round the next morning with a hangover, converted. Converted. And couldn't think what had happened to him, except for the first time he wanted to pray. And then he began to read his book. Well, you, you don't blame him becoming a Calvinist, do you? <laughs> what else could he become? He never signed a decision. He never forwarded a rally. He never responded. And his wife told me herself. He told me the story himself. His wife told me, but you listen to mine. She said a few days later, I was doing the, the, the hall, and she said, I couldn't think what had happened to Charles. And she said, I leant on top of the stick, and I thought to myself, on the top of the broom, and she said, I thought to myself, what has happened to my husband? And she said, suddenly I was converted. Now, when people tell me, oh, no, 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 somewhere or other, he must have responded. I don't know. They say the same thing about the Apostle Paul, you see, that somewhere or other he responded. They've written essays on it. Now, when he saw Stephen there, he must have thought, thought well, I don't know. But this is all conjecture. He was struck down by a vision of God, of the Lord Jesus, and was saved. Now, when someone goes forward at a rally and signs a decision card and is gloriously saved, I well understand that they have an emphasis that you've got to respond to God, to the call of God. But you see, we've, we've got two ends of, of, of a truth that we don't, with our finite minds we'll never be able to fathom. But when you bring the, everybody together, it's a marvelous fullness. We don't have to be divided on such things. I mean, if, if you want to have a shindy about it, I can give you a few scriptures to start it. Um, uh, straight away, on both sides. I've been in the business long enough to know just what those scriptures are. There are scriptures that I remember years ago, one will remember him, Noel Hunt, when I was an Arminian. And argued in that debate we had in Ismailia for it. And Noel Hunt took my autograph book. And he just put John 6, 44. Think about it. <laughs> and it was, all that the Father hath given me shall come unto me. And I will give them eternal life. And on the last day, I will raise them up. There couldn't be something more conclusive than that, could there? No loss there. <laughs> and I remember thinking, well, he must be wrong. But over the years, I've journeyed right the way round till I've come to see that that probably is the last word in the matter. That's why I firmly believe that Jewish people will be saved because it's pure Calvinism. 
the, the, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And he said it in connection with that temple. So, I'm only just saying, you see, why should we be divided on these things? Isn't the Lord bigger than any of us? And if we can stay together with these difference of emphasis and yet see the place of one another, there is a fullness that comes in to everything. We've even got it in the Bible. Paul says, you see that a man is saved by faith alone, without works. <laughs> and in the same generation, by the same Holy Spirit, James writes, you see, that man is saved by faith. Not by faith only, but by works also. <laughs> of course, some people with their little Western minds still say, oh, it blows my mind. I can't understand it. I can't get it. I don't think it's anything to worry about at all. I think they're saying the same thing, actually. But they see things from a different point of view. <coughs> oh. So all I know is that in this mystery of Christ, there is James and there is Paul. And they're going to be together forever. <laughs> in spite of the fact that Martin Luther said, the epistle of James is fit for nothing but for lighting a stove with. He saw so much what, what Martin, what, what, uh, what the Apostle Paul said, that he could not take James. Well, that's what's happened in church history. It's often not the first men. It's often what comes afterwards where we have all the fights. But, you know, coming back now to this matter, and you see our time once again, as always, beats us. What's the truth of this matter? It is that there is only one church. There is only one body because there is only one Christ. <coughs> so Christ is our oneness and the Holy Spirit is the custodian. Did you hear that? Christ is your oneness, my oneness, the oneness between us. And the Holy Spirit is the custodian of that unity. I'm not closing this meeting, we will in a moment, but you remember the words of benediction at the end of the second letter of Corinth, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Communion. It says in some of the modern versions, fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The sharing power of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the custodian of the oneness of Christ. He's the one that makes it a viable, dynamic matter. Instead of it being some theory, some ideal, it becomes a practical, viable, powerful reality. It is the Holy Spirit who breathes into us all in such a way that we realize how little we are and how we need one another. It is the Holy Spirit who cuts us down to size in the most gracious manner. So that I, whoever we are, we realize we haven't got everything. We need our brothers and sisters. 
That is why the Holy Spirit, the custodian of this unity, manifests himself through whom he will. He doesn't consult with elders or with congregations. He manifests himself through whom he will, for the profit with all. And sometimes he takes the most humble person and gives them a word of knowledge. And we who are in leadership, it's sometimes quite hard to suddenly find that someone who's quite unlettered has got the key to a situation. But the Holy Spirit's the custodian of this unity. And it's as if he's saying, no single member is valueless. And so there are times when the Holy Spirit takes the most humble members and through them he gives the mind of God. That's why I'm so afraid of some of these pyramid structures, these great top-heavy authoritarian structures. There is authority in the church. We are to obey them that have the rule over us. There is such a thing as covering. There is such a thing as submission. But we have to be very, very careful of this kind of authoritarian structure where we get the mentality and those who are in leadership and everybody else gets the mentality that they're the only ones who ever get the mind of God. It's always up there, the mind. It doesn't always. In our history, we've found again and again that when we've been seeking the Lord, the Lord's mind has come through the most humble members. And then as we've taken it up, we've found the mind of God put us all together. Because the Holy Spirit is the custodian of this unity. And he does it in such a way that he balances the whole time. Note very carefully, will you, in John 17, uh, that word which I don't think comes out in the authorized version, if I'm right. It comes out in the revised version and American Standard Version, and then all the modern versions afterwards. In John 17, verse 21, the Lord Jesus said, First of all, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. Then he went on, verse 23, uh, uh, 22, the last part, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected into one. Now that is very interesting, isn't it? Perfected into one. So um, first our Lord says that they may be one, even as thou art in me and I in thee, that they may be in us. That's an absolute unity. But in the next moment he prays that they may be one, they may be perfected into one. So on the basis of an absolute unity, we are knit together. Isn't that beautiful? You see, in Christian circles, we've put the second perfecting into unity as the first matter. Do <laughs> you get it? We've put the being perfected into unity, growing into unity first, and the absolute unity as a goal. Where does the Lord Jesus put it the other way around? The absolute unity is something we're born into, and then on the basis of that, in that, by the Holy Spirit, we are perfected into one. That's why if you start to, in the light of this, I only pray that God give you light on this. And if you really go home and really pray about it and ask God, he will. You see, when you take a, a letter like the Ephesian letter, you will find it starts to speak about you may grow up into Christ who is the head from whom all the body fitly framed and knit together through that which every joint supplies, and so on. 
got it. So we're in him, but we've got to grow up into him. We're in him, that's the absolute, but now we have to be perfected. And isn't that our problem? Surely that's our problem. It's lovely to be able to say, we're all one, we're all one. But when we come to it, we suddenly find that there are a lot of problems. Human beings being human beings, we have problems. Every human being is a problem. It's true. As someone said, I like the world. But it's human beings that are the problem. Human beings are problems, aren't we? You, I'm a problem to you. You're a problem to me. <laughs> it's true. If, if we could only have this lovely theoretical unity and all live at a distance, we, we wouldn't have any problem. But it's when we have to work together, think together, plan together, act together, that we begin to rub up to one another the wrong way, and then all of a sudden we find, what is there about this unity? Now, if we don't hold fast the unity which is ours in Christ, we can't be perfected into one. But it's only as we determine to maintain that unity of the Spirit that we can grow into one. Now, look very carefully at this matter, because if you take your Bible again and look at Ephesians chapter 4, you will find there the two kinds of unity. Look at chapter 4 of Ephesians and verse 13, where we are told this, Till we all attain unto the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a full-grown man. Now, did you note the words, till we all attain unto the unity of the faith, and the word is literally, and the full knowledge of the Son of God, unto a full-grown man. That all speaks of a process. It all speaks of something progressive, something we are attaining to. As one version puts it beautifully, till we all arrive at. We're arriving at it. What have we to do whilst we're arriving at the unity of the faith? Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3, giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, what we've done in Christian circles is we've made the unity of the faith our basis and the unity of the Spirit our goal. Whereas the unity of the Spirit is our basis and the unity of the faith is our goal. We don't see eye to eye yet, but we will do. It says in the uh, prophecy of Isaiah, and then shall they see eye to eye in that day. <laughs> the Apostle Paul says, those of us who are perfect we're, are thus minded, have the same mind. In other words, the more we grow up, the more real oneness we have. Because we can give ground for the smaller things. And on the essentials, we stay together and go through together. Got it? I think it's important to see this because if we don't, you younger ones, some of the older ones, they've known this for, a, for some years, but you younger ones, you'll, you'll never stay together. There will come issues that will tear you in too. There will come controversies in the world which will have its complement in the church and then we shall all be at sixes and sevens. There's only one way through. The unity of the faith, we, I, I don't know whether we can ever be absolutely one. On, the, in the, on this matter of the unity of the faith, till we are with the Lord. What a day that will be when every secret's un, uh, finally, um, un, and then when, when the Lord says now, uh, this meant this, and this that, and when we suddenly say, oh, my. 
I don't think any one of us will be 100% right. We won't be able to sit, sit there sort of preening our feathers and say, oh, I was right. <laughs> All the way through. I don't think any of us will be right. But it would be wonderful to see just how We've all got, and wouldn't, won't we be sad if we made the unity of the faith a means of division, a basis for division? It's very, therefore, it's very important, this whole matter. So let me close by just pointing you to some scriptures in Romans, in 15, verse 7. What then should be our practical attitude in this matter? Well, here we've got it, Romans 15, verse 7. Wherefore, receive ye one another, even as also Christ received you to the glory of God. How did Christ receive you? Did he receive you as a marvelous, going-on saint? Did he receive you as a, an elite overcomer? Did he receive you as a pure, sweet, spiritual, virgin, unadulterated? unmixed no impurity the Lord Jesus didn't receive any of us like that how did he receive you how did he receive me he received you and me as sinners he received us on the basis that you and I were no good and that he saved us through his finished work now wouldn't it be wonderful if we received one another on that basis there's a, 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 a minimal basis upon which I can receive you. You've been saved by the grace of God. But you know, we don't do that, do we? You know, if, when we look at one another and so on, we, we, we don't mind receiving someone who's just been saved a few days ago <laughs> on that basis. But as soon as it's beyond that, we think, so and so and so, pull their socks up. Why don't they get baptized? Time they got baptized something wrong there. Been baptized a year ago if they'd been hearing God. And so we'd, we set about um, filling the lap. We leave little books about baptism around. <laughs> or we draw attention to it at every possible opportunity. Sometimes it's a question of dress. We see someone, we don't, we don't like their dress. Then they're worldly. Or something else. Because God has spoken to me, I feel he should speak to you. God says, I can't go to films. How can you? I don't see if I can't go and see Death on the Nile. <laughs> Why you should go and see Death on the Nile. So what I'll do is, I'll give you a, a straight to the jaw spiritually on Sunday morning. Because I feel God has spoken to me. How come he hasn't spoken to you? There's only one reason. <laughs> if he says, don't go to that and death on the Nile. Now, I'm not saying he did say to me. Because <laughs> I know a whole lot of you will have a bad time. I know half of you were in that place watching that thing. <laughs> but you know what I mean. See, because God speaks to me. I feel, what about him? What about her? God says to you, you shouldn't cut your hair short. So then immediately you say, what about so-and-so? 
God says, let them get lipstick. So immediately you say, what does that sound so? How come she can pray with those unclean lips? <laughs> it's a strange thing. We, we, we're all the same. You see, you, you, you must remember that God may lead you a particular way because he's doing something in you. And you have to go that way with him. I know some people who couldn't play football or cricket. Now, if God had told me not to play cricket, it wouldn't have meant a thing. It would never have meant a thing to me. It would have been no problem. I would have said, yes, Lord. But if, if cricket's become an idol in somebody's life and God says to them, no more cricket, it doesn't mean that forever afterwards there's no more cricket. But what it does mean is this. The Lord is trying that person. Are they obedient? But you see, the trouble with all of us is that we anything God does in our lives, we make it a pattern for everybody else. If God did this, no matter that he took ten years getting me to the place where I no longer smoke, that doesn't matter. I, by the grace of God, will get you through in half a year. <laughs> I, will casual, I will give you little pamphlets on lung cancer. I will draw your attention to heart disease. And to the fact that no temple of God could be defiled by smoke. But we do this to one another instead of receiving one another. Now, I am not saying, get me right on this, I am not saying that there is not a place sometimes for faithful fellowship, not a place sometimes for caring for one another. But there's a vast difference in sharing something with a person after there's been much prayer in your heart and much love and much concern. There's a vast difference between that and somehow bludgeoning another person to because God has done, said something to you and therefore you think they should also follow the same way immediately. Receive ye one another as also Christ received you to the glory of God. And if you look back, you will see exactly what it means because in chapter 14 and verse 1, it says, Him that is weak in faith receive ye, yet not for... And this is how it is in mind. Decision of scruples, which is a, a dreadful rendering, a, a terribly wordy uh, rendering. But I always like best, I think it's the Revised Standard Version, which says, not for investigation of his conscience. Don't investigate one another's conscience. Leave that to God. Love one another. Receive one another. Care. Don't be partakers of one another's sins. But nevertheless, receive one another, care for one another, and let God do the work. You see, when it goes on in chapter 14, it says, One man hath faith to eat all things, but he that is weak eateth herbs. Some wouldn't feel that he that is weak eateth herbs. They would feel he that is strong eateth herbs. The vegetarian. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is this. 
if you feel that most of our food, now I'm putting it in modern terms now rather than the religious terms of the old days, because in those days it was a question of being kosher or non-kosher, and it was a very big crisis in the early church. It meant that those with Jewish background found it very hard to go and have a fellowship meal with those of Gentile background because of their kitchens, because of their hygiene standards and so on, and all the rest of it, and because of some of the things that the Gentiles ate. Well, you understand the same thing. I mean, some of you would go a bit green if you were asked to go to a meal and had dog. <laughs> or horse. No, you would. You see, it's the same thing. But we, we, because, because that's not our culture. The Chinese eat dogs. Very beautiful. Beautifully cooked. True. <laughs> but I mean, it turns as we go, oh, I couldn't. Just supposing there's a Chinese family down the road, and they've just got saved, and they ask you to go and have a fellowship meal with them. And they're having a speciality. <laughs> yeah, you can see your stomach rolling already, can't you? You go, oh dear, I don't think I'll have to. Well, I'll have to make an excuse. I'll, I'll go and have a cup of tea afterwards with them, or um, something like that. Well, this was the same kind of thing, really. But I've seen this matter of food become a, a thing. There are those who feel food is impure. That there are so many things injected into meat and, and so many things in, in our food. And, you know, they start and they sort of say, you, when they come to me, they sort of say, you know, you know, that's poison. <laughs> Do you have white flour? It's poison. White sugar? Oh, dear. <laughs> no, I'm not saying you shouldn't have brown sugar. Or that you shouldn't be very careful about your diet. <clears throat> but it, what it says is, don't let the way you feel about something become <clears throat> a means of division from your brothers and sisters. If someone's weak and feels all kinds of things are impure and therefore it's better to keep off them, well, respect them. But don't let it be a means of division. You know, if we could only see this, so much of the little things that destroy our unity would themselves be abolished. <clears throat> well, now I think that's enough for one evening. <clears throat> but the mystery of Christ is the oneness of Christ in action. I wish that we as a company, we have seen this over years, and by the grace of God we've practiced it. But I do pray with all my heart that we might be the more in this matter in the years that lie ahead. And it will, it will require, not the old ones, it requires you younger ones as well. If you don't take a positive stand to see that the Lord Jesus is the oneness, then age will become a barrier. Just as sex can become a barrier. Just as theological outlook can become a battle. Just as anything else can become a battle. Wouldn't it be a marvellous thing if in the days that lie ahead we were the oneness of Christ in action here in this town and that all those around us looking could see different colours, different nationalities, different racial backgrounds, different outlooks, different emphases, different temperaments, different ages, men and women, gloriously won.
because the Lord Jesus is the unity. That's the mystery. And it has to be put to the concrete test here. On earth, in time. The Lord give us help. Shall we pray? Lord, there's not one of us who at some time or another has not sinned against another believer. And thou hast said that, Lord, if we do not forgive those that trespass against us, neither will you forgive us. Dear Lord, we pray that you will help us in this matter. Help us to see the whole question in its broader principles. To see what this unity is, the nature of it. How we're born into it, Lord. Illuminate our hearts. Let divine light shine into us from the youngest to the eldest, Lord. Those who know this matter, Lord, let light shine in in new ways, Lord. And then we pray, Lord, thou help us that we may really be this oneness of the Lord Jesus in action. That there may be such a harmony and such a care for one another, such a growing up, such a complementing of one another, that, Lord, it will be just wonderful. Sweep away all those middle walls. They've gone, Father, through the finished work of the Lord Jesus. If in any way they have been rebuilt by our carelessness or ignorance, abolish them this night, we pray, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And may we flow together in the oneness of our Lord Jesus. This we ask in his precious name. Amen.